Now in partnership with the new Westport Library and the Quick Center for the Arts and iTunes, it's Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. And me, Megs Burroughs. And our, our guest today, I guess, sort of exemplifies, you know, six degrees of separation, except Warren Bloom probably has one degree of separation from everybody, every musician or actor or famous person you've ever heard of. He also sounds, I've never said this before, but you sound like, Warren Bloom is like a character in a Neil Simon play. Have you ever, oh. doesn't it just sound like Warren Bloom, just Warren? <laughs> it's like the producers, right? You know? Yeah, idea. Yeah, there's a Bloom, yeah. Yeah, who was the Bloom in the producers? There was, it was uh, Leo, Leo Bloom. Leo Bloom, okay. Right, he didn't no have Bloom. I saw that the other night. Amazing. So Warren's a, Musician, a raconteur, and uh, whatever, and a raconteur uh, is a rock. A vagrant. Actually, I look a lot like Migs, and people mistake me for you, Migs, all the time. I tell right. people, I, I'm, uh, I do Migs stunt works and, in the movies. I'm his double in the movies. And I have, I have a great <laughs> picture of of you and me and um, Larry Silver together, the silver... Um, yeah, right, the Three silver amigos. <laughs> anyway, you... Um, All right, we're here. Well, we're here, and you actually have more in common with Trace because you're both musicians, so right. I don't know, Trace, would, would you, you like to... Uh, amazing, well, uh, do you want to get into the stories a little right yeah. with the music in the middle? Well, you know, just quickly tell the people who I am, you know. I'm, uh, yeah, please. You know, I, I was just... I When I was a real little kid, I... Uh, I hummed when I ate, I still do. And a teacher used to say, who's humming? And, the, and they'd come around and I'd be, it'd be me at my desk. And I didn't know it was me. And I, my, and I got a little older. My sister is three years older than me. So um, in the fifties, she bought all the records and I was like nine or 10, but I had access to all this early rock and roll in the fifties. And I really got into this fantasy world of singing. And I finally went off to college in North Carolina Got into a band, got into a great bar band, played all through the 60s as a lead singer in rock band, singing 96 Tears and Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. And then in the 70s, I was in a comedy rock band in Philadelphia called Lobotomy. <laughs> and that was kind of like the road to doom. We were sort of like a Monty Python, musical Monty Python. And eventually I moved to New York and I became a singer at Catch a Rising Star. And so, that's it. I got a lot of stories. I wrote a book, which I'll probably get out in about a year, called um, In and Out of Key. And uh, Trace, you'd like me to tell a few of my stories, huh? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll just throw names like yeah. uh, the Hendrix story. Oh, right, here's the Hendrix story. Um, <laughs> I was living in Philadelphia, and I had this beautiful girlfriend named Sally Sherman. And uh, I said, hey, Hendrix is coming to town. How about you and I going to Hendrix? And she said, no, I can't go to Hendrix, can't go to Hendrix. So I went to Hendrix by myself and I was waiting in line outside and had my ticket ready to go in and a car pulls up, a cat, old Cadillac, all painted all over, hippie painting it all over. And out of the car comes Hendrix with my girlfriend, <laughs> right? And, and uh, Hendrix walks right past me, one inch by me. He says, hi, how you doing? And my sister, my, my girlfriend looks the other way and it pretends to not know me. So, you know, it's just, uh, what can I tell you? That was, she uh, never told you she had a, she uh, knew Jimi Hendrix. No, she had been to England the previous summer and she told me she knew Noel Redding. So 
Jimi Hendrix bass player. Groovy vibes there. No doubt about it. In Philadelphia, I did a record with Hall and Oates called Natural Sinner, and they weren't real famous at the time. And uh, so, when you say you did a record with, were you in the, you know, you were a studio uh, I, musician or? They played the uh, instruments and I sang. It came out oh, really? cool. all over the world, and uh, it wasn't a hit. But then uh, some a fellow by the name of, I think his name's Elton John. That's it. <laughs> A guy named Elton John came out with the same arrangement, the same tune, and he recorded it. It, it was a hit in England before I did it. Was it your song? No, by Andy Fairweather Lowe. Oh, and, right. uh, in order to do a song in the 70s, you had to get the rights to record it in America. It wasn't like you could just, you know, there was no internet. So these producers got the rights, and I sang it. You, you can find it on my uh, Lost and Found CD on iTunes. Kind of a gospel thing. I was singing very, very high. But Hall and Oates were great guys. And Daryl Hall, I went to his house and he was playing the garden hose. And uh, really silly guys. And uh, he was playing the what? The uh, garden hose? Is that a place or is yeah, that? He literally played a garden hose. He cut out holes and the fingering was like a clown. Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was <laughs> hysterical. Uh, you know, they were really good guys. And uh, after they had their first hit, I thought that was some uh, scatological uh, reference to it. I went up to Daryl at some event. I said, Man, congratulations. You guys are the nicest guys. And he, he gave me the greatest compliment I've ever had. No, it didn't say you look like Midge Burroughs. <laughs> you know, I actually did their first tour booklet. Oh, I believe you. Before they yeah. were, and they were complete unknowns. It was just some, oh, no, some weird guys in Westport. I can't even remember their names. Oh my God. And I was the only person they knew that did graphics, and they were in charge of something with them. They were helping promote their first concert. Oh my God. Tour. And I did the booklet, and I, I met them at some apartment in New York. The only thing I remember, I, I remember nothing about it. I, I wasn't impressed because I didn't know who they were. They were just like, they could have been just two street musicians because uh -huh. they weren't famous and their names didn't mean anything. But uh, Daryl Hall had these fingers that were like, I don't know. I mean, he shook my hand and they were like Martian fingers. Right. Like eight inch natural, long. Natural musician, that guy. Yeah. You know, I, I congratulated him. He gave me the greatest compliment I've ever gotten. He says, hey, man, you sing better than me. <laughs> yeah. Like Derek Jeter telling you. So he did remember. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and in Philadelphia, the band Lobotomy, we opened for uh, Lou Reed with the Velvet Underground for about like a month. So I got oh. to know those guys. Mm. Lou Reed once, he looked at me once. He said, hey, man, you really know how to sing the ballads. And uh, I got really depressed, you know. I thought, crap, you know. He said, no, that's the hardest thing to do. So that, you know, I've got yeah. compliments from uh, like- Those are great compliments. Great people, you know, that's probably the two greatest compliments I ever got in my life. But anyway- So I grew you up grew with up in Philadelphia? No, I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut. Oh. And uh, my family, the family were, were friends with the Belzer family. So- Oh, Richard Belzer. York, the comedian, yeah. Yeah, he, he came to Philadelphia and I saw him and we reconnected and I moved to New York and lived with Belzer. Moved to Philly, really? Philly to New York, and lived with Belzer for the first month in New York in 1977. Was he doing stand-up then? Oh yeah, he was kind of getting there, you know. And uh, his good friend, best friend, was Larry David. And he was friends with John Belushi and Chevy Chase, and you know, I was these, these are the people I was getting to know. And they're also running this comedy club, Catch a Rising Star. So I got to sing there, even though I, you know, I didn't have to wait in line to put my name on a 
Um, mm. but, yeah. Uh, I, I think I might have told uh, Trace this story that uh, one of uh, Elsa's friends was Chevy Chase. So Chevy Chase, uh, of course, I knew him, and he, he was doing a stand-up comedy at Catch a Rising Star. He wasn't really great at stand-up. And after the set, his set was over, he just kind of angrily stormed off stage and walked straight ahead through a few tables and out a center courtyard. And, and, and so I, I went out, you know, to console him and hang with him and compliment him and lie to him, tell him he was great. <laughs> and, you know, I went out there and the door shut in back of me and he looked at me and said, hey, you just, you just locked us out of the club. And, and I panicked. I thought, oh my God, I just like locked Chevy Chase out of Catch a Rising Star. He said, well, go climb down through that little window down there in the apartment next door and uh, crawl through there, that labyrinth, and come down around and let me in. Come on. So I was panicking, freaking out. So like a contortionist, I crawled through this window, barely, and got, went down through this labyrinth, down the hallway, and running out into the street, back into Catch a Rising Star, and there was Chevy Chase standing at the bar. Oh, looking at me like you jerk, <laughs> like laughing at me. He was just playing a practical joke, which I never knew whether to take it as a compliment or just exactly what. But so did you have a manager at that time? I mean, were you, were you like ambitious? Oh, and... yeah, actually, uh, the band I was in before I moved to New York, a uh, lobotomy, my comedy rock band in Philadelphia is called Lobotomy, the one that opened for uh, Velvet Underground, and we had an album on Paramount Records. And, you know, they told us, well, you can't be funny, be serious. <laughs> so uh, we, we kind of threw out our whole identity. And because we were a comedy rock band. Like, uh, we did Hendrix in Spanish. And our, our best song was My Baby's Got Lemons. It was blues. And it would stop in the middle. And we'd eat a lemon and, and make faces. And we did this in small comedy, you know, rock comedy clubs. And we were pretty well known. And uh, But we opened for the New York Dolls. And Iggy Pop, and uh, we could play rock and roll, but um, but you know uh, when I moved to New York, you know the Face Dancer Lobotomy changed the name to the Face Dancers, and our album was produced by Tio Macera, legendary jazz producer, who produced Ella Fitzgerald, Miles Davis. The album came out all over the world, but was a tax write-off, wasn't a hit, whatever. Oh, when I moved to New York, I was living with Belzer at 77th and Riverside, and up the street was Miles Davis. And I walked past his house, and I walked past it every day. And one day he was standing out front, and I said, I saw him there. I said, Miles, I did this, an album with Tia Macera. And he said, Oh, yeah, come on in. I, I was freaked out. So really? he said, He pulled out a couple of Heinekens. He <laughs> spent an afternoon with Miles Davis, just the two of us, drinking Heinekens. Were you talk, talk music or what? Well, the only music I, I, I really was in such shock with this guy, this icon, legendary guy. I said, I play guitar. And he said, well, let's see your fingers. <laughs> and I showed him my calluses. And he said, no, no, the sides of your fingers. Hmm. And I didn't have calluses on the sides of my fingers. He said, oh, you don't play guitar. Why? What does that represent? Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you do a lot of jazz and bar chords, words, you, you get calluses on the sides of your fingers. If you're really good at guitar, I, I, right now I have calluses on the sides. Oh, interesting. Back in '77, I didn't. But he uh, played piano. He was he could, he could have gone on Carnegie Hall. I mean, he was a fantastic piano player. He said he he told me he hadn't played guitar in a couple of years. You know, and uh, so then you know. That. 
porn, yeah. And, uh, you know, just as far as the Larry David, uh, you know, I played on the Catch, Catch a Rising Star softball team. I was the, the, uh, <laughs> the umpire. And I, you know, because I figured it'd be more fun. I'd call the ball a strike before it reached home plate. Stick right, <laughs> I was still a minute. Got a few laughs. But Larry David dominated the whole game. He played shortstop and did the hidden ball trick on even when there was no runners on second base, he was just standing always with the, you know, he was a there was a Seinfeld episode. I don't know if he wrote it, you know, about their softball team. I think, I don't know if it was, it would bet Midler supposedly was on the, the other team. Oh, really? So it was based on that. Apparently on that. That's, that's another, another one of my stories in my book, which will, you know, which is, there's a publisher in the audience, get in touch with Migs or Trace. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh yeah, well there was a <laughs> episode based on me. Yeah. My very close friend Fred Stoller, who I hope does a uh, blog with you guys. Yeah. Uh, he 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 wrote for Seinfeld for a season, and uh, every, all the writers pitched their ideas down to Larry David down the hall. Fred couldn't get any of his ideas his ideas passed, but he remembered that that when I lived on Seventy Third Street in Manhattan. I originally had my, I unplugged my refrigerator and I just used it for my clothes. You know, I put my shirts in the, you know, I put my socks in the fruit drawer, my underwear, <laughs> you know, because I had a very small apartment and I wasn't, he, eventually I threw the refrigerator out and just put the food on the, my outside on the window sill. And Fred thought, thought that was hysterical. So he passed that idea down to Larry David. And eventually that became uh, Larry wrote, you know, the, the show Seinfeld again, written by Fred Stoller and uh, fr uh, what's his name? Uh, Kramer. Kramer yeah. threw the refrigerator out. Oh. He said, yeah, there's more food. There's no room for, you know, and there's a whole oh, yeah. And that was based on me. So the night that was on TV, Fred called me and oh, you know, cool. it was pretty funny. It was kind of cool. You know, I was excited. But, uh, so you guys want to do some music? We're like halfway through our thing. Do you want to yeah, do okay, something? Okay. Um, I'm gonna do a song with Trace pretty soon, but I, this yeah. is a song of mine that, that okay. is uh, sort of a common common denominator song. And you know, in the pandemic, I saw so many people play guitar and sing their songs, and they were human. You know, Bon Jovi was just, he just plays and sings. You know, Neil Diamond is just it's you know he just plays and sings. You know, I, I mean, uh, but here I didn't see anyone do this. And what this is is. I'm going to play harmonica and sing. So hmm. here it goes, ready? The song is Tango Lullaby. <laughs> Down at the dark side cafe, while on the port of Marseille, she was sipping Chardonnay. I just couldn't look away. And at the Spanish steps in Rome, I saw her dancing all alone. Her body rhyming like a poem. Was she like me so far from home? Tango, tango lullaby. She's everywhere with every sigh. Tango, tango lullaby. Serenade me to sleep. 
before I cry. so white her hair was blowing in moonlight I watched him kissing all the time now Barcelona's beautiful and so are nights in Istanbul you can feel magnetic pull Argentina's golden rule tango tango lullaby She's everywhere with every sign. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, man, oh, kind of, so yeah, you wrote yeah. you wrote that? I done did. And is that based on like of uh, your travels? Yeah, I haven't really been to any of them. I haven't been, really? been to the Spanish steps in Rome. I played that tune for a long time and, and I thought it sounded Russian. And hmm. for a Russian guy, he said, no, that's not, not Russian, not Russian. <laughs> so, uh, then I play, I, one day I played it for a drummer who was a, uh, who played in the Borscht Belt up there in Grossinger's. He said, oh, that's a tango. I said, hmm. oh, really? So that's, you know, tango and lullaby are kind of. But what inspired, where does it come from? I mean, even the name, you know. You know I just knew the words had to be, uh, have something to do with, with uh, Mediterranean, Middle East, European, if it's a tango. You know, down at the dockside on the port of Marseille. No, I've never been to Marseille. Yeah. So, uh, that's, you know, I have that song nicely recorded with a beautiful band. Yeah. Andy Abel. It's, it's a really nice recording on iTunes. But, but oh. more stories? Really nice. to yeah, good. Sure. Well, I went to Woodstock. Uh, you know, uh, you and I uh, did a, like a thing, a little uh, presentation where we talked about the 60s, whatever, but. You know, I, Woodstock was, uh, I was like in the front row. I'm actually in the movie. If you go right before John Sebastian starts playing, uh, there's a close-up of me in the movie clapping my hands and looking like a platypus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, duh, duh, blasted out of my mind on something. But, uh, you know, The Who came out. My favorite Woodstock story is The Who came out at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, second to last day, and it was this was after being in the rain for hours and exhausted. And they came out, and I, I love the Who, and I was so excited. And they hit that first note, and it was fantastic. And then they stopped playing and started walking off stage. I, I couldn't believe it. I said to the guy next to me, "What's going on?" He said, "You fell asleep. You just slept through, through the whole." Oh wow! <laughs> you know, wow! You just slept through two dozen Who songs. And from the front row of Woodstock. Yeah, how could that that be possible? I mean, like, they're so loud, you know? Yeah. The vibrations lured you, you know, shook you to sleep. Were you that stoned? I don't know. I don't think so. It was the loudest thing I ever heard, and I fell asleep. So, yeah. So, you missed the part. Supposedly, Pete Townsend punched out Jerry Rubin or something? Or... Uh, you're not Jerry Rubin. No, the other guy, Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. actually, I saw that. You did, did you? Yeah, yeah. And then like two minutes later, <laughs> that's unbelievable, right? Yeah, it is. 
to, to be all that way and then miss it. You know, when I was living in New York, things happen in New York that are like impossible nowadays, like hitchhiking is impossible, right? Or, you know, I was driving up First Avenue, like in the early 80s, you know, and I saw this man standing in front of the United Nations and I recognized him. It was Lawrence O'Brien, who was the commissioner of the National Basketball Association. In fact, now the trophy is named the Lawrence O'Brien Trophy, right? Mm -hmm. So I was driving by him and I, I had a little Chevy Citation rear car and I stopped right in front. I said, he was trying to get a cab. He couldn't catch a cab. I said, Mr. O'Brien, do you need a ride? And he said, sure. And he jumped in the car with me. You know, I mean, that could not happen nowadays. Anyway, so he hopped in the car. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going downtown to the village. So I said, great. So I, you know, I drove up, turned my car around, started driving downtown. I thought, great, let's talk basketball. You know, I said, uh, well, Commissioner O'Brien, you know, uh, what's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? I mean, you know these guys, Magic Johnson. I mean, what's Magic Johnson? What is Magic Johnson like? He said, well, I really don't want to talk about basketball. Uh, do you know anything about politics? <laughs> well, of course I know something about it. I mean, sure, I, you know. He said, well, have you ever heard of Watergate? And I said, of course I've heard of Watergate. <laughs> he said, well, that was my office. I was the head of the Democratic National oh, Committee. Wow. And it was my office that was broken into. So if it wasn't for me, there would have been no Watergate. Oh, my God. That's, That's crazy. I, people always, I hear stories of people. I've never met anyone, seen or met anyone famous in New York. Not that I go there that often. Oh, I got so many stories. I mean, one afternoon, I was working in a gourmet shop and uh, a, a, a coffee. I was waiting on this woman and a man, and this coffee fell on the ground beneath the table. And it was waiting under there. So I got on my hands and knees, and they got both got under their knee, hands and knees. They were like 80 years old, old people, and would reach for the coffee. I look up, and it's uh, Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan. You know, he wrote... Uh, Adam's rib, and she was the star of a million. You know. She was also a screenwriter. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, yeah. I mean, you know, you just can't believe it. They're, they're just so many, you know, one after the other. That's, I mean, that's the so only person I met in Connecticut who really is. Uh, I've traced. Have you met any famous? Jose Feliciano's a great guy. You know, I played a tango lullaby for two minutes in front of him once, and he oh, said, yeah? "Oh, that's the key of A minor." I mean, he knew the key of the song just from the sound of the, the mother, you know. In Manhattan, I've seen a couple of people that, you know, are television. I don't know, like one guy from MTV, forget his name. He's a comedian. And I saw, you know, I see random, I've seen random people, you know, walk down the street that are celebrities, yeah. you know. Um, who's that really tall guy with the blonde hair, plays piano, and he's on the radio. He's like eight, seven feet tall. He's married to Connie Selica. What? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, John Chess, yeah, John saw him and saw him walking down. Yeah, the the yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I do. Don Tesh, yeah, he played. Yeah, he's a kind of real. Exactly. A lot of people don't like him, but you nah, know, he's, he's it's a, very hard to play uh, middle of the road music and, and have it come off as edgy, you know. Yeah, a lot it, of my it, music, it, my recordings are so syrupy. You, you didn't you like present a song to Pat Benatar? Yeah, Pat and I, she was a singer at Catch a Rising Star. I was a singer there. Oh, there were only a couple of singers, you know, and uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, when I lived in Philly, I had right after lobotomy broke up, face dancers broke up, I had a really high-end recording. I had backers and she listened to it and she said, oh, I love it. Uh, you've got your own sound, which was a great compliment. And also, you know, she really was complimentary at the time in 1978. She was a supper club, smooth supper club. Oh, yeah. She said, she said, I want to do rock and roll. I want to do rock and roll. I can do your, can I do your tune? So I have this called Bonfire, which, uh, you know, is a kind of like a rock tune. And uh, she, she took the recording home and she changed it to first person. And uh, she did it with her band and it was great, you know? I, I thought it was great. And uh, she, she soon after auditioned for Chrysalis Records at Tramps, a huge club, and opened with Bonfire, my oh, song, no. I was freaking out. And after the concert, she said, yeah, they offered me a contract. I'm going to do a rock, I'm going to do a record. I'm so excited. And I was, wow, this is great, you know? Yeah, your song. And, uh, yeah, and so a couple of weeks, months go, you know, a month or two goes by. She says, I can't do your record. I can't do your song. It's a little too rock and roll for me. It's a little too rock. I said, okay, okay, okay. And then she came out with her first song, which was called Heartbreaker. Yeah. Which was like my song times five, you know? Yeah. It was much more rock than my song. So, of course, she became a big star. Thanks to your song. I mean, your song yeah, got her the other. Uh, it definitely was her first one. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, about a year or two later, I went to her. I still knew her. I said, uh, can you do bon? Will you do bonfire? She said, "Oh, it's not rock enough for me. Take it to, Bar take it to Barbara Streisand." Oh man! And I thought, "Yeah, I'm gonna call up Babs." Uh, <laughs> I was hanging out with her yesterday. We were playing pickleball. Yeah, really. Yeah. I was Babs yesterday. You know? My softball team. Yeah. Jeez. That reminds me of when I, I was out in California in the '80s. Another crazy story. Then we're gonna do a song mix. Yeah. Uh, my friend Kelly. Who I was in the, my lobotomy and, and became the face there. He became a stand-up comic, well-known, moved out to Hollywood and got married. And within a, within a couple of months, his beautiful wife decided she'd go into showbiz. And meanwhile, Kelly was struggling and she got all these national commercials and she got to meet the Rolling Stones and the George Harrison and all these people. And I was out in California trying to take one of my tunes around, which was a hard rock, a real hard rock tune called White Line, which you could find on uh, iTunes. And uh, in the key of D minor, I might add. And uh, <laughs> she said, yeah, yeah, go down to Hollywood. We'll go down to Hollywood. And uh, you can take it in to go see the Stones Management Company. So I was really excited. So we all went down to Hollywood. And we walked into this office and sunset and whatever way up and the door opens and the whole apart the whole office appeared to be leather there were leather couches leather walls other people men with leather faces <laughs> it was the most leather place i've ever seen in my life it was leather you know that's all i could think so you know i was a little i was nervous you know yeah, i don't know who these people were you know the manager managers of the stones i don't know i don't know if it was uh, that guy Peter Rudge was one. Yeah, of them. it might have been that guy because it wasn't. That Andrew Lou Goldham, he was the yeah. old. Yeah, he was the first manager. I don't know. They were, these guys were like scary. Yeah. And they also had five day growths, which they were like Don Johnson before Don Johnson. You know, they they had shaved in a week, which was 
a look back then, which was unheard of. And uh, I was real nervous. And, and they put on my song, White Line, and cranked it, ear splitting all over this place. And they listened, they listened, they listened. And when it was over, it was silence. And they looked at each other. And they nodded. And they came over to me. And they said, that was fantastic. Mm. You're incredible. You, you've got it. <laughs> you got it. Uh, we, we, we think we can do something with this. I, of course, at the, that second, I was, you know, yeah. freaking. And then they quietly looked at me and they said, if you can come up with a uh, million dollars to start this project off, the, off, get it off the ground, I think we can do something with you. <laughs> they want you to bring it up. <laughs> oh. and, I, and I thought, well, do you want to intend? They were completely serious. And so that's I think, oh, man. You know, I was going to home do my laundry. I, you know, see how much, how much change They're I They're the money guy. Yeah. They're supposed to hide. They give you the money. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they believe in you so much. They're supposed to, yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, you know, we can come up with a million if you come up with a million. All right. Trace yes, so, let, yeah, let's go out with your song. That'd be this would be great. I mean, our you're together. Nice. We're gonna do Crossroads by the yeah. by the. Trace is gonna mostly sing this, and I'm okay. mostly gonna wing it. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. I'm also the bass player. Boom, 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 boom. I'm Eric Clapton with no cap Clapton. I went down to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. Down to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. Asked the Lord above for mercy. Thank you. That's a nice way to, to, to end it.